If we do that every uh, week, I, uh, I might just learn their names. I can't, Alyssa, thank you so much for helping me. You, you know, my sister is here. She can tell you that uh, we grew up thinking we were special because our grandfather called us Blue Blue. We thought it was a special name of endearment. And then our mother revealed to us one day that he called all of his grandkids that because he couldn't remember our names. So it would have been a pretty boring service if they were all blue-blue this morning. One of the commitments that we are trying to make, and there is some purpose to this, even though I joke and say we're making it up as we go, but one of the commitments is that it's one of the things that we've learned over this last year is that we really want our children involved with us in our worship. We don't want them to be unfamiliar with what we do in here, and then when they become adults, they're not sure where their place is. We want them to own this, and we want them to be a part of it. And so going forward, I think you're going to see more involvement. It's not that worship is going to cater to the children. It's that they're going to be asked to serve and participate in worship the same way all of us are. I'm convicted by that also when I look at the Bible story for today. And it's this, um, it's this word, Hosanna, that comes from our text for this morning. Uh, what we did today is the first of what I'd like for you to think of as an eight-day journey towards Easter. And regardless, if you want to call Easter Easter, if you want to call it Resurrection Sunday, if you just want to say that the rest of the world is thinking about our Savior, fantastic. But doesn't this provide us an opportunity to come together as families and to focus daily on what it would mean to see and witness Jesus in his life, in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection, and now as he rules and reigns? we got an opportunity here, friends. And over the next eight days... I want to encourage you to do what we've been doing all year long. We've been worshiping with our children at home. This is not the time for us to say, whew, finally, now we can send them off and then we get to, you know, do our own worship. No, it's not the way God designed us. It's not the way God designed the family or the church. Let's spend some more together time around the things that are most important. You will find today out there on the foyer a, a, a list of, uh, it's a guide really for these eight-day exercises. And if you'll go to that website, westark.org slash Easter 8, the letter, the number 8, uh, you'll find all of this written out so you don't have to memorize this screen. But I want you to check on the YouTube channel daily and there's going to be some presentation there that will help you grow closer in your relationship with Jesus and help you and your family, whether that includes children or whether that just includes a, a group of adults or, or whoever it is. If it's just you on your own, I think this is going to be profitable for all of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask now for your guidance in what could be a very momentous and a very significant time in the life of this congregation. We ask for a blessing, Lord. We ask for your spirit to be made known to each of us and to all of us. And we pray that we'll be willing or we'll be able to share in this and that we'll be willing to share it 
with even the youngest among us as they grow in their understanding of who you are. And Father, be with those of us who are older, for there's still so much that we can learn and know, and I pray that our relationship with you will be enriched. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. That word Hosanna is found in Matthew 21, among other Gospels. But I want to look at the text from Matthew 21. Let me read this, and then when we get to the word Hosanna, we'll talk about what it means uh, afterwards. In Matthew 21, Matthew writes that when they, meaning Jesus and the disciples, approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus gave two disciples a task. He said to them, go into the village over there. As soon as you enter, you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that their master needs them. And Jesus sent them off right away. Now this happened to fulfill what the prophet Zechariah said. Say to daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble, riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the donkey's offspring. And the disciples went and did just as Jesus had ordered them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them, and then he sat on them. Now a large cloud spread their clothes on the road, and others cut palm branches off the trees, spread them on the road, and the crowds in front of him and behind him shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds answered, it's the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Then Jesus went into the temple and he threw out all those who were selling and buying there. And he pushed over the tables used for currency and, and for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout for crooks. And people who were blind and lame came to Jesus in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and legal experts saw the amazing things that he was doing, and the children shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were angry. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, he answered. Haven't you ever read from the mouths of babies and infants? You've arranged praise for yourself. And then he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Well, I hope all of you saw something in that, and our little demonstration around Coins for Christ made you think about it. There's a lot going on in here, kind of like what happened at uh, uh, our, our Coins for Christ just now. There's a lot going on. And in fact, when you read this story about the donkey and the colt of a donkey, you begin to wonder, wait, how is Jesus riding two donkeys? Is this a miracle? I've seen some people wonder if he's actually doing kind of a ski thing and he's got one foot on one and one on the other and he's riding it in. I don't think so. What's happening here is that there are images. There are images that are, that are taking place and it's symbolic. All of these are symbolic of something. It's pointing to a bigger reality, and Jesus is fixing himself right in the middle of it. So when he comes in 
riding on a donkey, that is an image taken straight from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 is a promise to the children of Israel that there's going to come a king, and that king's going to ride in in victory. A donkey is not a war steed. You don't ride donkeys into battle. I don't know that I've heard of that too often, but they're not necessarily fast, and they, uh, they're not necessarily that big. And you, don't, you only ride the donkey when it's peacetime. So the fact that a king comes in riding the colt of a donkey, uh, uh, you know, a young animal, this, this is a leisurely stroll. This is a victorious king. This is someone who comes in a time of peace. Jesus on this donkey is saying, Hey, the peace that was promised by Zechariah is here. The victory that was promised by Zechariah is here. No, there's not going to be some final Armageddon war. The arrival of Jesus on our shores says, it's done. God has won. It's here. So the people of Zion, that's Jerusalem, they rejoice because their king's coming to them. He's righteous. He's victorious but he's also humble, riding on a donkey. In other words, he's at peace. That's the first image that they see. And and what I want you to notice in this is some people see this and they get it, and some people see it and they should get it, but they don't. The children get it. The people of Zion get it. They're the ones who are crying out, Hosanna. And you know how, you remember kids, we talked about Hosanna. Do you know how these people know to say Hosanna? They read their Bible. They know their text. If you want to study this text today as the first day in an eight-day journey, then I'm also going to encourage you to study Psalm 118. There's hardly a better psalm that will help you understand a lot of what's going on in the New Testament than the 118th psalm. If you look through it, it mentions things that you'll say, that sounds awfully familiar. Haven't I seen that somewhere else besides the psalms? Yes, you have. Here's a section. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Wait, didn't somebody in the New Testament say that? Yeah. It was Peter who was there that day. When Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And then he uses that scripture to make the point that when the cornerstone, Jesus, came into the temple, he was rejected by the builders of the temple. This is the Lord's doing. It's wonderful to see. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will be rejoice and be glad in it. We say that a lot kind of a daily morning prayer. It's a good, appropriate daily morning prayer. But this is also the day of the Lord that he's talking about. The day that the king comes in victory. This is the day that the Lord has given us. That means that that day of the Lord that's out there in the future somewhere, it's coming to us as a gift of God. And we need to be those who are ready to say, well, we'll rejoice and we'll be glad in it. Not terrified and in stark terror over when it will get here. So the people know that the thing to do on that day is to say, Hosanna. And again, I put some Hebrew up there for the children. I do it for the children. Hosanna. All right? 
I really do. And, uh, and, and Hosanna is a single word in Hebrew that is a way of saying, Lord, help us. Lord, save us. It gets translated here as, please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Give us victory. Hosanna is, the, Hosanna is different from hallelujah. Hallelujah is what you say when you praise God. Hosanna is what you say when you say, I don't know anything else to say except, Hosanna, Lord, we need your rescue. Hosanna, Lord, we need you to save us. If you're having one of those moments where you're trying to pray, maybe you're battling depression, maybe you're fighting off worry, and you don't know what else to say, say Hosanna. Just pray Hosanna. God understands. I love languages and how they work, and it struck me just recently that God understands all these languages. He'll understand you too. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. There should have been a blessing for the king who comes from the house of the Lord, from the temple. But in this case, the temple is not ready to welcome the king, humble, righteous, and victorious. Sometimes we separate these stories. It's one thing to see Jesus coming in, smiling and happy, on the donkey, everybody laying down these palm branches. And again, Psalm 118 will help you understand what that's all about. But they're doing that. And then the next thing you know, it's like Jesus just gets upset and he runs into the temple and starts punching people out. That's more of the American sort of, you know, redneck gospel telling of what happens. I don't think that's what really happened at all. But we like to picture Jesus as Clint Eastwood or John Wayne going in there and sorting things out. And he's going to throw the bad guys out. If he had had a six-shooter, he would have drawn it. But that's not what's happening at all. Jesus is coming to the temple like the king is supposed to do, and he sees a group of people who instead of turning this into the kind of place, let me go back a slide, into the kind of place that would be able to sing, sing Hosanna and say, bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. Instead, what they're saying is, it's time to follow the rules. It's time to follow the rules. It's time to do this and time to do that. You don't get in here, you do. You're ready, you're not. And instead, he sees this elaborate system of religious legality. And it's embodied by these two verses. Jesus explains what he's doing. He doesn't just come in in a rage. He explains what he's doing because what is happening should not be. He quotes Isaiah 56 and he says, according to Isaiah 56... This should be a house of prayer for everybody. It was, the, it was the intent of God to turn this into a place where His name will be known and people can come and pray here. Isaiah 56, 7 is ringing out as Jesus reads this, as He says this to them. And He says, I will bring them to My holy mountain of Jerusalem. I will fill them with joy in My house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Notice that last sentence. God is saying through Isaiah, I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. And yet in the temple, when Jesus gets there, there are people 
who were being far more choosy and difficult than God ever was. God is ready to accept the sacrifices and the offerings, but this money changer system that was there, this, this religious bureaucracy that was there, was saying, no, we don't accept your animals. We don't accept your sacrifices. We don't accept your money. And Jesus is saying that is not God's vision. They have made this about them and their bureaucracy instead of about making this a place that welcomes people who want to worship God. Which brings up another scripture that Jesus knows very well. Jeremiah 7. Where Jeremiah, the prophet, speaks about the temple. This is before the Babylonian invasion. And he says, don't be fooled into thinking that you will never suffer because the temple is here. It's a lie. Do you really think you can steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, and burn incense to Baal and all those other new gods of yours and then come here and stand before me in my temple and chant, we are safe? Only to go right back to all those evils again. Church, how long have we just sort of as a default adopted the idea that as long as we you know, tick all the boxes off the list and as long as we do all the things we're supposed to, then we're okay and then we can do whatever we want the rest of the week. Decades ago, I had somebody say to me, and they meant this. They were serious. They were completely serious. And this was a smart, intelligent person. And he said to me as a, as, a, as a new minister, he said, look, he goes, isn't it true? Isn't it true that all this stuff that we talk about on Sunday, I mean, it sounds good and it's an idea, but the reality is that Monday through Saturday, it's really just a dog-eat-dog world and we've got to do the best we can. And at first I thought it was a joke. I thought, you're just, you're just having me on, aren't you? You're just, you're just being sarcastic. No. He really wanted to know that that's the way this works, isn't it? I said, absolutely not. If that's the way it works, then we're wasting our time on Sunday. If that's the way it works, then all of this is nothing. This is the reality, friends. What we experience when we come before God, this is the reality. Out there, the workaday world, that's the lie. That's what we have to do. That's where we live. That's where we go. But the truth's not out there. The truth is here. And you see, when we get that confused, then we lose sight of this. One of the things that's happened in the last year is it should have taught us that all of that out there in the world, all the things that we think provide us with security, all the things that we think provide us with entertainment and fulfillment and, and, and purpose in life, all of that can come crashing down like a house of cards. But what did we do? Even though it was different, even though it looked different, even though things will never maybe go back to exactly the way they were, what did we do every Sunday during all of that? We worshipped. We remembered God. We found creative ways to encourage one another. We weren't running a religious bureaucracy where we were trying to tick off the boxes on the list and pay the fines and cover the tolls and dodge the taxes or whatever it was. 
We found ways to really encourage one another. This lesson should just reinforce that for us. There's two responses that take place in this story that we ought to notice. The first is the leaders in the temple. They're offended because the children are shouting Hosanna, which is a prayer for help and salvation. The people who need God are coming to God, and they're seeing this as the day that the Lord has made. This is a day of victory. This is a a day worth celebrating. And they're saying, Hosanna! And when the leaders notice that, did you catch that in the text? They see all that. They see the wonderful and amazing things that Jesus is doing. And what is their response? To get angry. How does that happen? Well, that happens when you're so used to being in control and so used to doing things your way that suddenly the reality of God busts in on that and tears up your way of doing things. I don't think Jesus is a brawler at all in this story. I don't think that he's a a, a fighter and he's not beating people. The whip is for the animals. It's not for human beings. But I think he is offended. I think that's obvious that he is offended. He's offended that the house of prayer for all nations has been corrupted. Did you notice that when Jesus shuts down their little bureaucracy, it's the blind and the lame and the poor who are coming into the temple. You know, there's a background to this. Those are the kind of people who weren't allowed in the temple. Jesus says, God accepts your sacrifices because of what He's going to do through me. The honest and sincere cry for help from children is not recognized. There's a rich biblical tradition on this. When Hannah, the mother of Samuel, is praying, not in the temple, but in the tabernacle, long before the temple, and she's praying to God for help. She's praying her Hosanna prayer. The priest... Eli thinks that she's drunk and doesn't recognize the sincere cry for help. I hope it's never said of us that when we come, but we don't make God when we get here. We don't create God. We don't summon God. When we gather together, we now, the people of God, we are the temple of God. God is with us because of Jesus Christ. And so his presence goes where he wills. But I hope that in this fellowship, it will never be said that the sincere, honest cry for help from children of any age, even those that we wouldn't think of as children, I hope it's never said that we don't recognize that. There's the critics, and then there's the crowds. And this week, as you study these texts, I hope that you will see the crowds who are finding their way to Jesus. When we come around the Lord's Supper table today, we're not coming to check a box off of a list. We're coming because we've been invited. We've been invited to the king's banquet. We've been invited to the king's meal. So let's sing this, and then uh, Rick Carson will lead us in the Lord's Supper this morning.